This case was covered day in and day out by the national press. David filed the injunction papers literally within 24 hours or less of the Tate Supreme Court ruling. When we first went into court, Judge Jones leaned over and said, you mean we're going to enjoin Nixon? In the United States, the gap between rich and poor is the largest it's been in half a century. But we know that income inequality is a long-standing issue in this country. Part of the problem is that discrimination can make it nearly impossible for people to rise above poverty and all too easy for people to fall into it. My name is Kate Stetson. I'm a global board member and the co-director of the appellate practice at Hogan Lovells. Not long after the Community Services Department was formed in 1970, our attorneys served as counsel on multiple lawsuits fighting for economic justice. One was on behalf of the NAACP, which was facing a legal action that threatened its very existence. I'm joined by Judge David Tatel and Alan Snyder, who represented the NAACP in that case. And I'd like to start by just asking each of them to introduce themselves. Judge? Uh, so I am David Tatel. Uh, I uh, was at Hogan and Hartson uh, two different times from 1974 to 77. I came to Hogan and Hartson as an associate from serving as director of the National Lawyers Committee. I then left the firm for a couple of years to serve in the Carter administration, returned for some 20 years, and I've been a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit now for almost 26 years. And Alan? I'm Alan Snyder. I joined Hogan and Hartson in the fall of 1972 after I graduated from law school and did a one-year clerkship, judicial clerkship. And my first two years at the firm were as the so-called senior associate in the community services or pro bono department. And then I went into the litigation group where I practiced uh, for the rest of my 29 to 30 years at, at Hogan before I retired. So the judge and Alan are here to talk today about the Henry versus First National case. And judge, I think I'll start with you. Can you talk a little bit about how this case arrived with us? This case arose in a small town in Mississippi called Port Gibson. Uh, I've been there. It's actually a beautiful town, high above the Mississippi River. And it's famous for all the police, fire departments, uh, fire engines and everything. They all have a slogan on their equipment, and it's too beautiful to burn. And that comes from Ulysses Grant, who... Uh, when his army was moving from the Mississippi towards Jackson in 1863, he passed through Port Gibson, and he ordered the army not to destroy the town. He said it was too beautiful to burn. And it is definitely physically beautiful, but in terms of race relations, it was not a beautiful place. In the 1960s, Port Gibson was a classic Mississippi town, rigidly segregated from Reconstruction until the... Uh, Late 40s, there had been four lynchings in Claiborne County. The governmental agencies in the county and the town were all white. Uh, the merchants were all white. Uh, no blacks were hired by the merchants. The schools were segregated. It was a tense, difficult time in Mississippi. It was 1964 was Mississippi Freedom Summer, the killing of the three civil rights workers, the development of uh, boycotts. It, it was a dangerous, uh, a tense time in Mississippi. Yeah. And in Port Gibson, 
the black community decided in 65 or 66 to begin boycotting the merchants. The white merchants would not hire blacks. The town wouldn't hire blacks. So the community, eventually led by the NAACP and Charles Edgar Evers, the brother of slain civil rights leader Medgar Evers, started a boycott in Port Gibson and in many other small towns around the state, the idea being to pressure the city and the merchants to hire blacks, desegregate the schools and other things. Mm -hmm. um, the case arose because the merchants, led largely by the White Citizens Council, which was the public successor of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, decided to file a state antitrust action against the NAACP and the hundred or so demonstrators. In Mississippi, the state antitrust actions were filed before a chancellor, that is an equity judge. There was no, no jury. Trial went on for uh, quite a few months. And in the end, the chancellor uh, ruled for the merchants and entered a verdict of some $1.2 million. What was the theory that these white merchants were endorsing uh, to, to bring an antitrust lawsuit against the NAACP and against those individuals? Actually, under Mississippi law, their theory was completely sound. Uh, as the courts had interpreted the state antitrust law, a boycott that limited the business opportunities for the merchants was a violation of state law. This boycott probably did violate state law mm -hmm. to organize, to harm someone's business. And of course, we all knew from the very beginning how this case was going to come out. It was quite clear from the chancellor's questions and from who he was that the NAACP would lose this case. Mm -hmm. It was not. It was not an open issue for anybody. Right, at least that round of that case. Yeah. So when Hogan and Hartson got involved, talk a little bit about how that happened. They called me, uh, and they called Jim Robertson, who was also a former director of the Lawyers Committee, and they asked Jim to appeal the verdict to the Mississippi Supreme Court. They asked us uh, to deal with an immediate and dangerous situation that stemmed from the fact that in Mississippi, in order to appeal a judgment entered by a chancellor, the appellant had to post a bond of 1.25 times the verdict. So just in order to exercise its appeals right, the NAACP and the individuals had to post a bond of some $1.3 million. So our argument was that forcing the NAACP to pay the bond would bankrupt it and therefore prevent it from appealing. It turned out that one of the NAACP's bank accounts was in the First National Bank of Clarksdale. That's why the case has the name First National Bank of Clarksdale. Mm -hmm. So I left for Oxford. That's where the Northern District is. By the way, I should say, Kate, this case was covered day in and day out by the national press. Right. That's had a right. huge amount of publicity. So, so there they, were reporters. That, they were tailing you. Yeah. yeah. So as we drove across, so I drove, I, I was there with, uh, I brought along uh, Roy Wilkins, the head of the NAACP, in case I needed him as a witness. Bob Murphy, the then director of the Lawyers Committee, was with me. And so we drove across the, the Delta, which is about a three-hour drive, followed the entire way by a ABC news truck. 
So we get to Oxford and we checked into a small hotel. Uh, Oxford's a lovely little town with a square and the hotel was on the square across the street from the courthouse. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, is that as I checked in, the man checking in next to me, slightly before me, turns out to have been Dixon Piles, the lawyer for the white merchants. I had never met Dixon before. He was a well-known Mississippi lawyer who uh, who undertook many cases for the White Citizens Council. Mm-hmm. So your, your opposing <clears throat> counsel was yeah, he's right there. at the same hotel. Yeah, he's right yeah. there. We shook hands. And then the next morning, now this is before cell phones, so I had to stay in touch with Jim through landlines. Uh, Jim went over to the Mississippi Supreme Court. He had a 9.30 or 10 o'clock appointment. As Jim tells it, he walked into the room. The court was assembled around a conference table. said he spoke for half an hour. No one asked a question. Mm-hmm. He said it was it was obvious from the very first op- statement he made that not only wouldn't there be any questions, but that he, he wasn't going to get anywhere. At about 11 o'clock, uh, the Mississippi Supreme Court rejected Jim's motion right. to waive the bond. He was asking the Mississippi Supreme Court to waive the bond requirement on the grounds that requiring the bond would interfere with the NAACP's First Amendment rights mm-hmm. by prohibiting it from appealing. So at that point, we had already alerted Judge Smith that we needed to see him. So I went before Judge Smith in his courtroom. Uh, I argued my side of the case, and Dixon Piles argued his side of the case. And the judge said, he asked one or two questions, and he, without taking a break, he looked over at me and said, well, Mr. Tatel, I'm going to grant you a TRO. Would you draft it up for me? So I went into his law library, and we wrote up a brief temporary restraining order, I took it into his office. He made one or two changes and entered it. So yeah. when Judge Smith took the step of entering the TRO and then, if, if I understand correctly, after that entered the preliminary injunction, which covered a longer period of time, right. uh, the White Citizens Council took an appeal from right. that preliminary injunction. And that, I believe, is where Alan comes into the picture. Well, let me just say one more thing. Uh, so the preliminary injunction hearing was two weeks later. We had to go back to Mississippi mm-hmm. again with our witnesses. And then he entered the preliminary injunction. Of course, that freed Jim Robertson to put together his merits appeal to the Mississippi yes, Supreme Court. Yes. And at that point, I said, Alan. <laughs> I've got a case for I've you. I've got a case for you. <laughs> David and I worked on a number of cases, a good number of cases, over the years at Hogan. But the issue that worried me the most on the appeal is that fundamentally, although we tried not to frame it this way, but fundamentally we were arguing, among other things, that the bond requirement, at least as applied in this case, was unconstitutional. Bond requirements for appeals were quite common right. back then. I think there still, still. Are, are quite a number of states that require it. So fundamentally, if you really kind of dug down deep, you were asking the judges to say that this bond requirement, at least as applied here, is unconstitutional. And I think I was concerned that appellate judges would say, well, where is the line that gets drawn in future cases? Is every uh, appellant going to tell us it's unconstitutional to apply the bond to them. Uh, this is a common thing around the country. So when I went down to argue the case some months later in the Fifth Circuit, uh, that was still the big issue that, that I was worried about. Um, the argument went fairly well. We did get a very uh, strong uh, and unanimous appellate opinion, which 
the other side then sought rehearing in bank, were denied, and then they sought cert from the Supreme Court and it was denied. So the case went on for quite some time, but in the meantime, because of David's work, there was an injunction that, that allowed them to proceed with the Mississippi litigation without posting a bond. Right. And ultimately, uh, Jim Robertson and his team won that case in the Supreme Court. So uh, both sides of the litigation went well, and, and the NAACP, which could have been bankrupted by the a chancery court's decision uh, didn't have that problem. Jim Robertson was down in Mississippi arguing for the state court to rule, which was really a predicate before the federal yes. court was going to rule. And there were only just a few days left before the execution on the judgment could have could have gone ahead. So David filed the injunction papers literally within 24 hours or less of the state Supreme Court ruling so that we could then ask for a temporary restraining order and hopefully get it before the other side could execute judgment and bankrupt the right. NAACP. Right. We, we went to the court Friday morning, alerted the judge that we were waiting for the Mississippi Supreme Court to act. And that was the day, by the way, that the merchants could have executed on the judgment. It was the same day. So both of these cases, I imagine, took some time to spool out. So what was the what was the situation back on the ground in Port Gibson during those years? What changed Port Gibson is what changed the rest of Mississippi, which was the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. The Voting Rights Act was passed in 65, and within five years throughout the South, uh, blacks were voting at pretty much the same rate as whites. And although there was a, still a huge amount of resistance, as we know, the fact is that a lot of these towns began to have one or two elected black officials. Yes, yeah. And the merchants, you know, began to relent and realize that their business depended on hiring black people. Yes, exactly. And so Port Gibson, like the rest of the South, did begin very, very slowly. I, I just want to thank you both again, uh, Alan and Judge Tatel, for taking the time to come in and talk about this, this important case with us. It was wonderful to talk with you both. Thanks for having us. It's been us. a real pleasure. Thank you. I'm going to ask Alan to stick around and have Judge John Farron join us. During their time at Hogan Lovells, Alan and John played a critical role in the fight to preserve the Community Action Program, instituted during President Johnson's War on Poverty and later threatened under President Nixon's administration. Judge John Farron, do you want to introduce yourself? Well, I joined the firm in 1970 and uh, as a as head of the community services department. And uh, since 1977, I've been a member of the DC Court of Appeals. And we're gonna talk today about the Office of Economic Opportunities Community Action Program. And I wonder if uh, Judge Farron, you might wanna lead off, talk about the origins of the program, how it began and what it constituted. Well, the uh, Community Action Program uh, was uh, sort of a centerpiece of President Johnson's War on Poverty. Uh, established under the uh, Economic Opportunity Act in uh, 1964. And it created a whole network around the country of what were called Community Action Agencies, or CAAs, and they were governed by a board. And the whole point of it was to involve local residents uh, in helping to uh, figure out a way to attack the causes of poverty in their local communities. And the funds came from the federal government, of course, and normally they would go through local governments, which would then set up these agencies and pick the board members. And the 
interesting part of this was that one-third of the board members by statute had to be local residents. And it was called Maximum Feasible Participation of the Poor. And I would just add that uh, that necessarily led to a lot of tension because the politicians, who comprise normally two-thirds of the board or local business leaders or others, uh, were often at odds with the residents' views of uh, what kinds of actions should be taken to uh, help their situations locally. So that's just a broad background on how the community action program got started. Can you talk a little bit about the nature of the programs that kind of came within the umbrella of that organization? Virtually all of them had a job training program element. A number of them had educational program elements. Uh, I think some had legal services components, got some funding for providing legal services to the low-income people in the area. The, the, the fundamental idea of having community action agencies, I think, was <clears throat> to decentralize some of the decision-making, and these local residents who participated in it were obviously uh, intended to try to be sure that the needs of the local community were being focused. In the early 1970s, you've both talked about the role that residents and participants in these community programs had in governance of the programs. And I'm curious whether when you place it alongside the uh, racial and civil rights struggles of that time, were there particular tensions or dissensions among governance when it came to, say, minority neighborhoods? So I think the the racial tensions and the power sharing issues got changed by by Johnson's action both to move the power to the national level and yet at the same time to give more local resonant input into the power and i think both of those things were highly resented in the locations where there were racial tensions in, in liberal states that were trying hard to have anti-poverty programs, it wasn't such a radical thing. In Mississippi and in Alabama, now you had the federal government that was hated for various reasons, including civil rights enforcement, and you had the involvement of local residents who previously had zero voice in, in places like Mississippi and Alabama. Right. So why don't we transition then to early 1973? And Alan, maybe talk about what was happening in the spring of 1973 and then how Hogan and Hartson got involved. Well, in January of 1973, President Nixon gave his State of the Union address, and he just announced, I think to the surprise of most people, that he intended to zero out or no longer propose funding for OEO at all, the Office of Economic Opportunity. Uh, he announced in his next budget would get zero funding and whatever functions it had left uh, would be transferred to other agencies, but fundamentally he was saying he wanted to do away with the war on poverty programs. And within just a few days after that, Howard Phillips, whom, whom Nixon had appointed as the acting director of OEO, he issued a piece of paper which was referred to as an impoundment notice, which I don't think anybody recognized as a legal thing. Uh, and it just announced the procedures that he was going to adopt to close down the agency and basically said that there'd be no further grants issued effective immediately, that all the funding that they had left from the fiscal year would be used to close down the agency, that employees were going to be terminated, 
almost immediately that the funds would be used to hire moving trucks, to pay whatever severance pay, et cetera. Uh, the document was not done pursuant to the Administrative Procedure Act. There was no other notice or process. It just was an announcement, and that's what caused uh, the agencies, the community action agencies, to get geared up to fight this. The OEO local unions also decided to fight it. And, uh, we were retained by the, a group of community action agencies to represent their interests in getting additional continued funding, uh, which had been not only authorized through the following fiscal year, but the monies for the current fiscal year had been appropriated. So Congress had already enacted a law that said that that money, quote, shall, close quote, be spent during the current fiscal year, and Phillips was announcing that it would not be spent for those purposes. The local unions filed a case on behalf of their employees. We filed at virtually the same time for the community action agencies. Those two cases were consolidated in front of Judge Jones in the U.S. District Court here in D.C. We sought initially a temporary restraining order to right away stop the, the cutoff of funds. The judge early on strong-armed the government into agreeing that they wouldn't implement the plan until he had had a chance to rule. He wrote in his opinion that the power to enjoin government action is readily within the judicial power. That's an exact quote, where a government official is simply not following a congressional enactment. It seemed straightforward to him. It seemed straightforward to us. It's kind of interesting, though, that uh, when we first went into court, um, Judge Jones leaned over and said, you mean we're going to enjoin Nixon? And he seemed a little incredulous that the whole lawsuit got turned around pretty quickly, but uh, it was kind of a daunting statement to just stand up there and hear that. But there still was the problem of getting money for the next round, you know, for the next fiscal year. And I remember one time having a meeting of counsel at Hogan, and in walks the room, uninvited, unannounced, was Ralph Nader. And he said, we just want to notify you, we'd like you to join us, we're going to file this lawsuit to say that Howard Phillips is illegally in office because the Senate had not confirmed him. I don't know. I remember swallowing a few times hard, and then I said, well, we're not going to join that because this could be disastrous because if Phillips is out and nobody else is in, who is going to sign the grants? I said, would you please wait until we get the suit finalized in a way that uh, it's clear that the new grants could go forward? And he said no, and they filed a lawsuit. Public Citizen did it. Uh, they prevailed in the district court before Judge Jones, and then uh, went up to the court of the other side. Government went up to the court of appeals, and the court of appeals sustained the judge ruling. I think I'm right about that, Alan. If I'm not mistaken, uh, that was the result. In any event, um, I guess there is a God because Nixon appointed a new uh, head of OEO, mm. Alvin Arnett who signed the grants so that prospectively everything worked out as well. So we talked about the, the beginning of the community assistance program. We've talked about the end of the lawsuits. I want to come back to the moment where Hogan and Hartson decided to get involved. And I wonder if you can talk about how this came to you uh, and the team that you assembled here. Josh. Well, if uh, I recall correctly, and Alan, you can chime in and say I'm wrong on this. I believe it was the Lawyers Committee that was in touch with these community action agencies. 
and they were the ones that uh, forwarded the case to us or asked if we'd be involved, and of course we said yes. My recollection is that the Lawyers Committee called John, who was the head of the Community Services Department at the time, and, and I think they had at least tentatively identified potential plaintiffs, and John then called me to be his number two. I had been at the firm all of a couple of months or so at the time, and that was the team. John and I handled the case. It was wonderful working with John always, and in this case in particular, I'll never forget, here I was just a few months in, and I was working closely with John on on all aspects of the case. In fact, he even let me argue one of the preliminary motions days uh, on my own, which was pretty heady for me since even though we were telling Judge Jones he wasn't enjoining the president, it felt to me like we were dealing with the president. And uh, so it was a fascinating case, and uh, I think we both were pretty excited about it. Well, getting Alan involved shows how smart I am. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I think that is one of the the astonishing and consistent joys of the Community Services Department is that it does give new associates, including very brand new associates, the opportunity to come in and participate substantively in really impactful litigation. That still continues today. So Alan and Judge Farron, thank you both so much for taking the time to come and and talk with me about this fascinating case and your work on it. Another one of Hogan Lovell's most significant early pro bono efforts, the creation of the Legal Services Corporation. I am delighted to be back here again with Judge uh, David Tatel and Judge John Farron. We're going to talk about um, a a project that they were both involved in while at the firm, um, the Legal Services Corporation. And I think it's important maybe to start with a bit of context, and I'll ask Judge Farron to do this, to give a little bit of background about uh, legal services, where the thought of forming an organization like this came from. Well, you know, for years there had been legal aid societies or legal aid bureaus all over the country, uh, most of which were located in, you know, 10th floor of big buildings located in the center of town where nobody could find them. And um, in 1964, when the President Johnson's War on Poverty uh, began uh, through creation of the U.S. Office of Economic Opportunity, he hired Sergeant Shriver as the director and Mr. Shriver was eager to get a legal services program that really would meet the needs of low-income folks in the community. There really ought to be neighborhood lawyers for the low-income folks because unless you had people who are out there, uh, they couldn't be found, number one, at legal aid societies. And number two, if you're working full-time for the community and you're out in the neighborhoods, there's at least a chance of gaining the trust of people who might not otherwise do that. So. The Legal Services Program uh, set up uh, a whole network of of local neighborhood offices. And in support of those offices, there were created a number of um, what they called backup centers in law schools. Well, a backup center is a law office, in effect, lodged normally in a law school that develops strategies and serves clients uh, with those strategies in areas such as housing, consumer, education, migrant action, uh, welfare. And incidentally, Hogan and Hartson was the first law firm, perhaps the only law firm, to house a backup center. And we created the Migrant Legal Action Program called 
MLAP, and we're working uh, in that area. Which really? So that was housed here. Right here. Yes, yes. Well, of course, um, public officials, most notably Governor Ronald Reagan in California, but governors, mayors, every place, uh, were outraged at all of the lawsuits that the legal services lawyers were bringing against them. And so there's a lot of pressure on the legal services program. And President Nixon, of course, wanted to kill the whole poverty program, including uh, legal services. Legal services were very controversial, uh, especially the backup centers, uh, because they were suing major corporations, and those corporations were going to their congressmen and complaining. Uh, and, and, and it was, particularly the backup centers, were extraordinarily yeah. effective. They were hotbeds of law reform work. So right. they were a real target. <laughs> but the American Bar Association took a very strong stand in stressing the importance of this program. But despite all of that support, a consensus emerged, and largely with the Nixon administration's uh, attacking the whole poverty program, to have a, a more inde independent entity that could withstand the heat, so to speak. And that led to the creation of the Legal Services Corporation. It was intended to create the maximum amount of independence, independence from political pressure, for lawyers to do their job for low-income community. Judge Tatel, can you talk to us a little bit about how Hogan and Hartson came to be involved in assisting the Legal Services Corporation in forming itself, essentially? Uh, under the, the Legal Services Corporation Act, which Nixon signed, provided for a 90-day transition period for the newly created corporation to organize itself and take responsibility for OEO for running the legal services program. Um, that 90-day period, I should say that Congress created the corporation as a uh, D.C. nonprofit corporation with, I think, 11-member board appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. The chairman of the board appointed by President Ford was Roger Crampton. The newly created board asked Louis Oberdorfer, and a dear friend of mine, to be the interim president. Roger and Louis asked me whether Hogan would be willing to do all the legal work, basically be counsel to the new corporation, yeah. and the firm thought it was a good idea, so we did. It, it That's how we me, got into it. Yeah, it, it strikes me, too, <clears throat> that when, when you talk about a 90-day period right. to get this corporation with this kind of broad remit up and running. I mean, 90 days is, in, in some ways, a blink of an eye. I feel like there's laundry that I haven't folded in 90 <laughs> days. So just, just the, the amount of yeah, work right. to get this done. Well, the, yes, if they had given us 180 days, it would have taken us 180 days. <laughs> 90 days uh, got everybody's attention. It was, mm -hmm. I actually thought the amount of time, we didn't finish everything in the 90 days, but on the 90th day, we had a president in office, and on the 90th day, the Legal Services Corporation was running legal services throughout the country. Wow. So, so da David was in charge of the Hogan effort, right. but you got a lot of lawyers here with all of the expertise you needed, whether it was tax, corporate. It was heavy. amazing. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it was, a, it was really quite remarkable how many people worked on it, and we needed them all. You know, there were tax issues. Uh, mm -hmm. There were nonprofit issues. There were all kinds of really intriguing issues, and and the firm was just wonderful backup. We okay. talked about day ninety, but let's start at day one ish. What what were the immediate steps that needed to to 
take place in order to start getting this off the ground? How did how did Hogan and Hartson come in and start yeah. those gears moving? So the most important uh, work we did at the beginning was nuts and bolts. We had to get the corporation created under D.C. law. Mm-hmm. I, I filed the articles of the corporation. I walked over to the right office and did it. We had to get a tax exemption. I, I remember I filed that. Uh, tax exemption application was prepared and filed. And then, of course, there were lots of people at Hogan who helped us out, including negotiating our first lease, um, uh, uh, arranging for model contracts, all kinds of things that we needed to, to get a corporation operating, and one that was subject to congressional oversight. So everything had to be handled perfectly. We could cut no quarters because, as John said, legal services were extremely controversial. Mm-hmm. We went to see the attorney general, who was then Ed Levy, to be sure that we handled the appropriation process properly. And uh, Ed said, well, uh, you know, you've come to the right place, but I want the assistant attorney general in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel to work with you to make sure this right. That person was none other than Antonin Scalia. Yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah, so Scalia was extremely helpful to us in in helping us navigate the labyrinthine procedures and laws. In any event, this, thanks to to Levy and, and Scalia and the other people at the Justice Department and a lot of very smart lawyers at Hogan, we were able to figure this out and we produced a legal opinion for the corporation that guided this whole process. So let's talk a little bit about the backup centers, and maybe you can describe, um, you know, Judge Farron mentioned one that right. Hogan uh, housed. Yeah. Maybe you can mention a couple others, why sure. why they were so uh, controversial well, in the there cases were, I they think were pressed. There were 11 or 12 of them that OEO had created. There was a housing backup center, welfare, economics rights, consumers, uh, education, and these were all around the country like the Education Backup Center was at Harvard. The Housing Backup Center was at Berkeley. Uh, the Consumer Law Center was here in Washington. And these, these backup centers, you need to put them in their historical context. At the end of the 1960s, there was a blossoming of public interest law activities all around the country. And several very important organizations like the Center for Law and Social Policy were created in the late 1960s. Uh, backup centers were created by OEO as part of that. In fact, Hogan's Community Services Department is very much a product of that time, of the late 60s, when there was a growing desire for serious public interest activities, both funded by the public and in law firms. And all the major law firms in Washington responded. Hogan, of course, in my view, the best, uh, with its Community Services Department. So. Uh, the, the community services department and the backup centers are very much products of exactly the same historical forces. I think it's really important to stress that these support centers, formerly backup right. centers, uh, <laughs> were really hotbeds of yeah. creative strategy yeah. in uh, housing, in welfare, yeah. consumer issues, so that uh, so much intellectual energy went into developing right. new theories that they could then pass on to the many, many legal right. service offices in the field who would not have had the resources, enough people to, to do that. Flashing forward to today, does that same system exist or has it been replaced by other yeah. better systems, smaller uh, local uh, systems? Yeah. Uh, the corporation itself doesn't have any backup centers anymore. I, 
I can't remember how long they lasted, maybe into the 90s, but most of them were transferred to other entities. So for example, the housing backup center still exists. It's just a different name. I think there's another perspective that really ought to be thrown in here, and that is the zeal with which the lawyers, mostly young lawyers, all over the country in neighborhood offices were going to work every day and helping people. I mean, it was an incredible movement. Historically, lawyers were not permitted to advertise. They certainly couldn't solicit business. But in the 60s, with legal services programs, uh, most of us who were involved with them said, well, that's crazy. And ultimately, a Supreme Court decision uh, in 1968 sort of opened the opportunity to advertise and solicit business within certain realistic limitations, particularly solicitation. And as a result, you know, signs went up all over the grocery stores and laundromats and everything about free legal services. And uh, that kind of outreach, even at the most elementary level, I think really helped inform people that they did have legal rights and they could come and ask. I often think about this when you, there there are a lot of uh, bad raps against big firms out there these days and a lot of jokes that get made. But one of the things about big firms is that they can do very big things. And I think this was an example of a a massive project that brought in a whole bunch of partners and associates. The firm was eager to do this work and I think there are many things Hogan can look back on with a great deal of pride with its community services department, but one of them is certainly the vibrant Legal Services Corporation. And here's the good news, which is that the Legal Services Corporation today is a vibrant, successful organization that has resisted budget cuts. I mean, its its budget has not kept up with inflation, but the corporation has done extremely well. The legal services program in the country is vibrant. Uh, it's all too small. It can't possibly fulfill the needs of eligible clients who just aren't enough legal services lawyers. But it is an extremely successful organization. Great. I just want to thank you both again, Judge Farron and Judge Tatel, for being with us today. This is a wonderful conversation. Thank you for coming in. Our pleasure. In addition to economic justice, Hogan Lovells strives to end institutional poverty and systemic racism. In the next episode of the podcast, we take a look at our casework in Maryland to improve deplorable living conditions in an African-American community and our litigation aimed at desegregating schools. See you next time.